This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we discuss psychological and emotional issues and what you can do about them, whether that's self acceptance, taking action, or changing your attitude. Eight years ago, I extended the walls of my practice to reach those of you who might already be knowledgeable about mental health treatment, but also to those of you who might say you'd never darken the door of a therapist, and yet you're here. I'll answer your questions while I invite you to take a few minutes for your own self-work. So when I asked this question, he started laughing and said sarcastically, Oh, my mom, she'd get the biggest rocks she could find and she'd throw them at me and yell, You're never going to amount to anything. She'd scream it at me over and over. And he'd laugh some more. And I said, after we kind of calmed down a little bit, I said, Now you have a grandson, right? She said, right. So why don't we get him to go out in my front yard and let's pick out the biggest rocks we can find and throw them at him and scream, you'll never amount to anything. Today we're going to focus on how the inner child model of therapy has been used and what exactly does it mean. Simply put, which to me is always the best way, how much does a client realize and connect with the idea that their past, their experiences as a child, and how much that inner child may still be hurting, how much of that is accepted? I'll offer a story about how that connection is made in therapy. It's definitely something that many struggle with as they battle the belief that what happened years ago might be impacting who they think of themselves now. I'm not a kid anymore. Come on. Sometimes it takes a pretty dramatic connection for someone to allow themselves to believe it rather than it being seen as self-pity or woo-woo therapy. The listener voicemail for today is one I somehow missed last year, and I apologize for that, because it's an excellent comment. How do therapists experience their own struggles with what the listener called moral injury, compassion fatigue, and burnout, while we're going through, or went through, our own lives during the pandemic? I look forward to talking about my own struggles and way of trying to achieve, or should I say maintain, my own stability as a therapist. First, we'll hear from Moonbird and their new handheld device to help you sleep better and learn how to really breathe as it offers biofeedback, meaning how your breath and your heart are functioning in real time. It's amazing. With that feedback, you can learn how to calm yourself, de-stress, and sleep. We have a new sponsor on self-work and the product is Moonbird. Used by over 25,000 people in Europe, Moonbird is the world's first tactile breathing coach designed to fit in the palm of your hand. When you couple it with their free app, you can begin to grapple with stress, anxiety, or insomnia as you're guided through soothing breathwork exercises. Now, what does it do? Moonbird uniquely measures your heart rate and heart rate variability to guide you to change your own breathing patterns. Basically, you hold a device in your hand and you can feel the pattern of it expanding and contracting and you follow it. Simple as that. And you don't have to stare at a screen. Just close your eyes and breathe. Go to this website, moonbird.life slash product. That's moonbird.life slash product and enter the code SELFWORK for $10 off. Think of all the sleep aids you've bought over the years. I have a drawer full of them. I'm keeping Moonbird right by my bedside, and when I wake up at 2.30 like I usually do, I'm using it to go right back to sleep. Moonbird. It's what you can do about your stress and your insomnia and your life. Moonbird.life slash product and enter the code SELFWORK. 
I learn from every patient or client I've ever seen. Now, that may sound like a broad statement, even too broad. Every one of them? But it's true, because every patient is unique and presents their life, their history, their journey, whatever they call it, in a different way. And my job is to listen to what is present and what is not present, what is talked about, or what seems to be minimized or avoided or discounted or completely left out. What emotions are shown, or whether emotion isn't displayed at all, but the patient is telling their story like they're reading an article written by someone else, very objective, factual, analytical. So, what is inner child work? It means you become aware of how your past, your childhood, is affecting the present, or how you're experiencing or processing something in the now. I like this simple explanation given by Sherry Botwin, a trauma therapist and author of Thriving After Trauma, Stories of Living and Healing. And I quote, We grow up, we get bigger, and our brains become more logical, but that doesn't erase our thoughts, feelings, or memories from childhood. I'm not going to offer a complete history of when that term first began to be discussed. Freud himself, deemed the father of psychotherapy, called it the unconscious part of ourselves. Carl Jung, who's credited with the actual term, says something similar. And again, I quote, When you lose conscious awareness of your inner child, you lose conscious awareness of a part of yourself. In turn, you may experience difficulty regulating your emotions and act from a regressed state when upset. So what does regressed mean? It means that you're not acting necessarily rationally. You're acting more childlike with emotions that are more primitive might be a good word. Like all of a sudden you feel like throwing a tantrum or you do throw a tantrum or start inconsolable weeping or fold your arms in front of you and scream, no, <laughs> that's a regressed state. The term inner child was the gift of pop psychology when psychological treatment and words became part of what the general public talked about. Thinking of each of us having an inner child is also a huge part of a more recent therapeutic modality called internal family systems therapy. And a lot of people are enjoying this technique and finding it helpful. So what is internal family systems therapy? Sharon McClendon, a certified IFS therapist, and founder of Therapy Center of Houston says, We all have various parts in us, and these parts consist of different thoughts, feelings, or sensations. Another family therapist, Jessica Vekakul, who is trained in IFS therapy, adds to this saying, These parts of us are like the members of a family, who are each doing their best and have a special way of taking care of the whole family system. Sometimes parts feel stuck in roles or strategies that help somewhat, but can also be problematic. Now, this is kind of an interesting distinction that they make. IFS therapy says that everybody has three parts, three inner children or three inner beings, managers, firefighters, and exiles. This is kind of interesting. Manager parts work very hard to preemptively avoid situations that might bring you pain. For example, a perfectionist part might try to get everything right to avoid embarrassment or blame. So what are firefighters? These parts do whatever they can to put out the fire, or in more literal language, minimize feelings of pain, fear, or shame. Maybe they might consume alcohol to numb out feelings, for example. So they're trying to put the pain out. 
So what are the exile parts too? These are the parts of yourself that carry pain or trauma. The manager and firefighter parts try to bury the exile parts in an effort to prevent pain. Now, again, some of this may sound kind of wacko to you, (laughs) but the goal of IFS therapy isn't to get rid of any parts, but to create balance and ensure that none of the parts have an extreme role. Again, I just thought that was interesting for you to hear, and I think it modernizes the concepts of the inner child. So, How are you feeling about this so far? Are you aware of different parts of you that might be arguing with each other? I think many people have had this experience. For example, they're trying to make a decision and part of them is arguing with another part. The inner dialogue might sound like this. You won't make enough money. How would you manage making less than you do now? And here's another part. But I hate what I do now. I just manage on less. And me enjoying what I do is a lot more important. Now here comes the argumentative voice. Oh, so now your love for what you do is going to pay your electric bills. And on and on and on. You can hear this inner dialogue in your head. Again, not in actual way, like you're hallucinating and hearing voices, but different parts of you arguing with each other. I want to shift gears here and talk for a minute about DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. In early years, it was called a multiple personality disorder, and there were several really bad movies about it. Bad because there was always violence involved. The people I've worked with who experience DID don't have a history of violence. I'm sure there are some who do, but the vast majority of people who experience what are called altered states may have violence toward themselves, but that is far more common than violence toward others. The way I've explained having DID or dissociative identity disorder actually occurring in someone is that think of a trauma happening and in order to hold up the pain of the trauma the self splits so instead of one pair of hands trying to hold up the weight of the trauma there are now two sets of hands handling the trauma itself and of course if there are more and more splits into these altered states you've got more and more pairs of hands to handle the burden and handle the pain and handle the trauma it's a very simple explanation you can think of it also like cracked glass on a windshield that glass is still intact it's still working as a windshield but there are big cracks in it so you can think of the entire windshield as the whole person and the different sections of it as different altars now The diagnosis of DID is in the official manual of diagnostic categories now in psychiatry and psychology, but some mental health professionals do not agree that it actually exists. I'm not one of those people. I've treated a handful of DID patients over the years, and a couple of them for many years. It's definitely the most direct view of someone's inner child that I've ever witnessed. That's why I brought it up as I can absolutely see the changes from one altar to another. And one, if not more than one, are often children or teenagers. An older altar might be very protective of the youngest altar, for example. Or the child altar may enter my office very hesitatingly and needs the reassurance of stuffed animals or coloring. It's really fascinating, it's curious, but to me it's very real. And certainly treating these people with DID has helped me see that our minds are really incredibly protective of us. And if our minds need to quote-unquote split because of the severity of the trauma, then it does. And it's a healthy thing to have happen. It's a difficult life to live, don't get me wrong, but it's actually a healthy thing to have happened. It helps you emotionally survive. 
I did an episode on DID with a wonderful author who herself had experienced it, and I'll have that episode for you in the show notes if you'd like to listen to it. So again, my work with DID patients has given me the experience of actually talking with someone's inner child or inner children, and I've heard firsthand how they still are processing the world through a child's eyes. But DID is relatively rare, and this point should be made clearly. Inner child work and therapy with someone with DID are not the same. Your mind hasn't split as it does with DID to handle some kind of severe trauma. We all simply have had experiences as children that we may still feel and see through the eyes of that child. That does not mean you have DID. It's likely you'll realize something like, quote, I'm not acting like myself, but I also have this very strange and strong reaction that I don't understand and I don't like feeling. I hope that's clear. Again, if you do inner child work, if you do internal family systems therapy, for example, or you just are working on getting in touch with that child within you that has no connection with actual DID. Before I go on and give examples of inner child work, let's hear from BetterHelp. Why not start 2024 off by getting the help you need to do your own work, whether that's inner child work or simply self-work? I recently heard a fascinating reframe for the idea of asking for help. Maybe you view asking for help as something someone does who's falling apart or who isn't strong. So consider this. What if asking for help means that you won't let anything get in your way of solving an issue, finding out an answer, or discovering a better direction? Asking for help is much more about your determination to recognize what needs your attention or what is getting in your way of having the life you want. Better help. The number one online therapy provider makes reaching out about as easy as it can get. Within 48 hours, you'll have a professional licensed therapist with whom you can text, email, or talk with to guide you. And you're not having to comb through therapist websites or drive to appointments. It's convenient, inexpensive, and readily available. Now you can find a therapist that fits your needs with BetterHelp. And if you use the code or link betterhelp.com slash selfwork, you'll get 10% off your first month of sessions. So just do it. You'll be glad you did. That link again is betterhelp.com slash selfwork to get 10% off your first month of services. I'd like to tell you now a story that I often use when I teach about perfectly hidden depression to audiences that may not understand how you can still need to heal from childhood hurts because you haven't felt what you needed to. I think the example will be very helpful. I've named this guy Steve. It's obviously not his real name. Steve came in after he'd seen me with his wife, I guess kind of a test run. He'd retired about a year before from a job where he'd been extremely successful. But he looked forward to retirement. He loved being with his wife and grandkids. But he looked at me and said somewhat pensively, I don't know what's happened. I want to drink all the time, and I've never been a big drinker. I've gained 20 pounds, and I can't seem to get up off the couch to do anything about it. Now, as a mental health provider, I might have easily said something like, well, you sound depressed, so let's put you on an antidepressant. But that's not me. It's not my first line of reasoning, at least. I'm always wondering about what happened in childhood. So, I asked him about it, and he started laughing. Now, Steve is one of those guys... When he laughs, 
everybody laughs. I mean, he is a jolly, jolly fellow. His laugh is so infectious, you really can't help yourself. So when I asked this question, he started laughing and said sarcastically, Oh, my mom, she'd get the biggest rocks she could find, and she'd throw them at me and yell, You're never going to amount to anything. She'd scream it at me over and over, and he'd laugh some more. I smiled along with him and said, Okay. And I said, after we kind of calmed down a little bit, I said, Now, you have a grandson, right? She said, Right. So why don't we get him to go out in my front yard, and let's pick out the biggest rocks we can find, and throw them at him and scream, you'll never amount to anything. Steve looked like I'd thrown water on him. I couldn't do that. I said, well, why? You're laughing. He answered, because it would hurt him. I let the moment sit, and Steve was quiet. And I said, Steve, you've never worked out those feelings. You've just laughed about them of having a mother who was harsh and violent, who probably multiple times in your life did something just like that memory you have. You likely never felt safe or protected, but when you became so successful, when you received affirmation day after day, month after month, of how effective you were, and probably heard things like, we couldn't run this place without you, you did fine. But when you retired, the affirmation stopped. Now, all you get is questions about what you've done today. You get concerned looks from your wife or mad ones about how many drinks you've had. Without that affirmation, you're back to feeling what that little boy felt, who was hurt and scared. Steve just stared at me. You're right. In Terrence Reel's book, I Don't Want to Talk About It, he featured a patient having the same moment or a similar one as Steve's. That client said, you mean if I don't feel it, I live it? Yes. If you don't heal that inner child, if you don't go back and have compassion for that child, if you deny that any of those experiences were hurtful, those feelings will only grow in potency and they'll stick around. If you don't feel it, you act it out. You live it. So that's what inner child work is. I don't really care what you call it. If internal family systems work means sense to you, then do that. It's helped a bunch of people, and you can find IFS-trained therapists in your area. But inner child work, going back and understanding, is there anything going on in my present that could be connected with pain that I've not felt from the past? Any of that is good therapeutic work in my book. Speak pipe message from drmargaretrutherford.com. Let's hear from our listeners' voicemail for today. Resting after being a mental health care professional, a clinical counselor during the pandemic, feels counterintuitive, especially as people adjust to a new normal. Watching our friends and family suffer, having suffered and pulled through massive awakenings and struggles can also be very limiting. I would love to be able to dialogue around the parallel processes us professionals go through during these times and how others recover from moral injury as well as compassion fatigue and burnout. 
um, while at the same time being able to plot out our careers so that we do not lose traction and that we continue to support the people that we care about both professionally and in our personal lives. It sounds as if this listener is a therapist herself, and she uses a term that is most used in the military, moral injury. What does that mean? It means that there are psychological, social, and spiritual impacts on you when you feel like you've betrayed or transgressed against one of your own deeply held moral beliefs or values, and yet the stakes are very, very high, as in war. Maybe you killed someone. Maybe you survived, but you couldn't save your buddies when you believed that would never happen. That's moral injury. This was part of our experience during the pandemic because there was such disagreement and battling over who was right and who was wrong about COVID's dangers while we were watching people die. And medical professionals and mental health professionals alike were facing situations where they might have beliefs about what was right, and yet also they needed to treat people who weren't living by that same code. If you want to know what I did, I did years of virtual work only. When I returned to seeing people in the office, I think it was 2022, maybe at the latter part of 2021, I asked that everyone be vaccinated who came in. I didn't care or make it an issue when the sessions were virtual. It's just not important. But I have a heart condition, and I felt I needed to protect myself. That was not something I enjoyed doing. I'd always wanted to provide services to anyone that I could. I knew well that being vaccinated didn't prevent people from getting COVID, but I did ask my patients to get a vaccination, or I would see them virtually. I didn't ask for proof. I simply asked Now, in 2023, the latter part, I don't. But perhaps this listener wasn't in a situation where she had a choice. Moral injury and burnout are highly associated, but they're not the same. Burnout is not enjoying anymore what used to be enjoyable or something that you found worthwhile. You've done it so much. It's the same. And you just can't do that job anymore. You're burned out. It's an individual thing. Whereas moral injury has more to do with cultural expectations, what your environment may force you to do or accept, but you don't feel you can accept or should. And then she mentions compassion fatigue, feeling as if you have little to no compassion left over because there's so much pain and suffering going on. And it's your job to listen and try to help. Try not to absorb the pain yourself, although that can be very hard, especially when people you know and love are also getting sick or losing their jobs or losing other loved ones or they weren't able to be with someone they love. I myself didn't see my son for 14 months. What I did was try to give myself time and space to feel what I needed to feel about my own struggles through awareness, through exercise, through however I could manage. I'm sure not all the things I tried were completely healthy, frankly. My friend and hairstylist will tell you that my stress emerged in my hair. It's kind of weird, I know, which suddenly became dry and full of split ends and stuck out from my head like hay on a haystack. That may seem a little silly, but he said he saw that in many people. So I'm not sure I've answered this listener's question, but I hope that by explaining how I got through the pandemic that that may help her especially when she's trying to see the difference between moral injury, burnout, and compassion fatigue. And one more thought. With as much political and cultural strain going on in the world with so much violence, I do think therapists have to be careful with their exposure. 
my cup can't already be full to the brim. And then I hear someone else's pain and whatever's in my cup spills over. So it's a balance of caring, of staying in touch with the world, but also of balancing and knowing how much crises you can handle. Knowing that your patients are counting on you to not be demoralized yourself, that you have hope, that you have some sense of stability and belief in whatever it is that helps you be there for others in their own time of need. Thank you so much for being here. I'd love for more of you to send in questions via SpeakPipe. Some of that has slowed down. Maybe people think, well, my question won't be answered. So now is the time for you to get your question in. Go to drmargaretrutherford.com, and the call to record a podcast is on the top left of the homepage. It's really easy. Just drmargaretrutherford.com, or write me at askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'd love to hear from you, either by email or by SpeakPipe. The SpeakPipe app is also in your show notes. I hope that answering your questions personally is one of the things that makes self-work different. Also, my website is new and sparkly, and I have a new speaker page. I'd love to speak to your group about depression, about how to handle mental health conversations in the workplace, about perfectionism and how you know when it's helpful or not. Gosh, lots to talk about. You can also join my Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. I come and go, but we have some tremendous people who are in that group. And you can ask a question anonymously, or you can ask it as yourself, and you'll get a lot of very caring answers from people from all over the world. Again, thank you for being here. I'm always very grateful. Please take care of yourself, your family, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.